It's 2023, and the Earth itself is started on an existential crisis. Do desperate times require desperate acts? Oof, stay tuned. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. What's it going to take? Our guest today, in his first foray into fiction, an old friend, Chuck Collins, fictionalizes a just-ahead future, starting off from the present scary reality that a powerful fossil fuel industry has used its power, wealth, and influence to lock us in to a trajectory of Earth destruction. And so far, we've been presented with innumerable opportunities to wake up and advance needed changes. Well, this new book goes beyond the familiar method of fact-telling nonfiction to wake us up with a shocking story. Well, if you know Chuck Collins anywhere near as I do, you know a deeply dedicated activist for economic, foreign policy, and environmental justice who has written a number of thoughtful, important books, all nonfiction so far until now. Well, another great friend of mine, Adam Hochschild, author of King Leopold's Ghost and his latest American Midnight, says of Chuck's new book, Alter to an Erupting Sun, the story may be fanciful, but the issues are the most serious we have ever faced. And Gus Spelth, Speth, former dean at uh, Yale School of the Environment, author of They Knew, the U.S. federal government's 50-year role in causing the climate crisis, says, Collins' warm, affecting tale raises an important question, one well worth our pondering. Is there any measure or action that is too radical, too extreme, if truly necessary, to save the planet and its people? Good question. Well, you may know Chuck Collins is a campaigner and storyteller who's worked for decades on environmental and economic justice campaigns. He's director of the Program on Inequality and the Common Good. What a concept, the common good, at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he co-edits inequality.org. He's co-founder of divestinvest.org, a global movement to divest from fossil fuels and invest in climate solutions, and trustee of the Post-Carbon Institute and resilience.org. I don't know what he does in his spare time. Huh. He lives with his family in southern Vermont. He's the author of several books on wealth inequality, including most recently, the Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. This new one, Alter to an Erupting, uh, an Erupting Sun, is his debut novel. Well, thanks so much, Chuck Collins, for being with us. Thank you, Bert. Thanks for having me. Alter to an Erupting Sun is your first book of fiction. What might fiction be able to do that nonfiction maybe cannot? How did you come to write this book? Well, I know I've been very moved over my life by good fiction, fiction that, uh, you know, develops people and characters and kind of moves the heart and the mind. And, um, you know, I'm trying to be in a tradition of uh, future fiction where, you know, some of some of the book looks forward seven years and kind of imagines and envisions uh, sort of how one community, how our region in New England kind of faces potential climate disruptions. So, you know, it's, it's an opportunity to kind of get out of my head, if you will, and be a little bit more of a storyteller mm -hmm. and develop some compelling characters and, and hopefully a vision that can help us 
think about what's possible. Storytelling is is important. As a recovering politician myself, uh, people like stories. They connect with stories, and it's important to connect with people to communicate an important message. And this book, Altar to an Erupting Sun, takes place not in the sci-fi distant future, but the story of Ray Kelleher takes place now in 2023, facing down a diagnosis of terminal illness that kind of frees her up. She engages in a shocking suicide murder, taking the life of an oil company CEO for his role in wielding the power of big oil to delay responses to climate disruption. Well, Regicide is a tried-and-true method of forcing political change. Uh, Mao Zedong said, uh, political power comes through the barrel of a gun. My, my old uh, professor of political science, also in southern Vermont, uh, said that uh, uh, politics is the economy of violence. And what Ray did, this fictional character Ray did, is, is quite violent. And the fact is, oil executives have known since 1970, or perhaps before, that what they were doing was likely to threaten the survival of the planet, yet they continued and actually gained, dramatically increased their political power. The point being that over 50 years later, the trajectory remains the same, despite all the protests and the treaties, while you say uh, you reject violence as a strategy and to be, uh, depict negative blowback resulting from Ray's murder of the fossil fuel executive, you kind of also imply that her actions do have a positive transformative impact. Tell us about that. Well, you know, I think the context is uh, Ray, Ray Kelleher has spent her whole life kind of working uh, on nonviolent strategies, but what I try to do is 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 chronicle her her formation in a way that talks about you know what what led her to this final act. Um, but as you say, uh, Bert, you know there is this huge negative blowback, which I believe there would be yeah. if someone were to do this. Um, you know, criminalization of dissent and cracking down on legitimate protest. And, and kind of all kinds of negative consequences. Um, but as a thought experiment, I, you know, I think part of what um, Ray does is she's really focusing laser attention on the responsibility, culpability, complicity of a small number of people. You know, I think a lot of people say, well, we're all responsible for climate change. Mm. You know, you and I, you know, we could we could uh, we could walk to the store instead of driving or whatever. You know, we, we all could do more, mm. which is true. And Ray, the character, would agree with that. But as she grows older, she really sees the diabolical role that a few people have played in locking us into this trajectory um, and so, yeah, there's some interesting ripples. Uh, people in the global South think very highly of her. She's her photo sits on their mm -hmm. altar. There are tribunals of uh, and investigations into the role of the fossil fuel industry. The media starts to engage. And one divinity school holds a seminar saying, is this a Bonhoeffer moment in the fight for Mother Earth? You know, the climate and, uh, you know, she's, again, deeply steeped in 
this German pacifist Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who uh, you know was assassinated or it was part of a plot to assassinate Hitler and was later executed for that. So those are all the things that you know, and, and as well as some copycats, not not people committing act, shocking acts of murder, but uh, people stepping forward to do other forms of militant action, like like self-immolation, actually setting themselves on fire as the Vietnamese monks did in opposition right. to the war. Right. So there's, those are all like sort of, I guess you could call it kind of escalation of tactics that, that kind of open up um, indirectly or directly as a result of Ray's uh, shocking action. And there's no question, many times in history, as you say, with the self-immolation uh, of the monks in, in Vietnam, boy, that did focus the attention like it had not been focused before. And sometimes, it, as we've seen in history, like it or not, you know, without any kind of judgment, the fact is it grabs the attention and it, and it makes a statement more clearly, more powerfully than many other other times. And you begin the story uh, with Ray Kelleher's death, and you use many of the remaining pages to explore the arc of her life, that which made her who she was, and help, helps explain what otherwise might be seen as an inexplicable act, you know, somebody uh, killing the CEO of a respectable oil company. Tell us a bit about that backstory. Well, I think, um, you know, Ray's, uh, I should say, at the very end, Ray's kind of adopted daughter says, you know, what, uh, seven years later, she says, well, what, my, what Ray did was wrong. But what Ray would say is, what bold action will you take to defend the earth? And, that, 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 and I think you're right that, that there's a power of that witness and um, one of the stories, and it's a true story that I sort of weave into the novel, is the story of Norman Morrison, who was a, a, a U.S. Quaker who in 1965 uh, self-emulated, set himself on fire outside the office of Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara at the Pentagon. Mm. And we now know that decades later, uh, thanks to Errol Morris's movie, the, the Fog of War, about Robert McNamara, mm-hmm. where McNamara says, God, that, that Norman Morrison, I can't get him out of my head. Uh-huh. Uh, that this deeply affected the Secretary of Defense, who was sending troops to Vietnam. And so, there, that, you know, I think that's part of what the book tries to do is explore not just, you know, uh, the most extreme actions, but the range of actions because you know frankly we're we're in a kind of collision course you know the climate crisis uh, is just going to keep getting worse and we now know our political system is completely incapable of responding to this moment that we're in so people are going to be looking for extra political or direct action ways to express their feelings and we're going to see more of the kind of stories that i try to fictionalize in alter to an erupting sun. And the fact is, every one of us, I mean, the Earth, there's no planet B, as they say. I mean, this is it. And the fact is, as you say, the, uh, you know, through the political process, there's a lot of words going down and, you know, treaties and things like that, but it goes on and on and on. And 
let's the U.S. culture. As you mentioned, uh, uh, we look to individual actions. Yeah, we can all do something. We can all ride our bikes. With but the fact is, the policies that these you know few guys, and they're all guys, uh, I think, uh, make uh, are incredibly destructive. And you know, it's not like we're all we all have the same responsibility. We don't. Let's face it. I mean, we can all do individual acts, but. That's that's not going to cut it. We need real, real wake up call, and uh, that that's what that's what she does. And some of the people that Ray, your fictional character, learn from are rather you know real people that that you and I both knew: Sam Lovejoy, Wally and Juanita Nelson, Chuck Mathai, uh, and and many others. These are real people. Uh, what formative lessons did they provide? They, they did some interesting, brave, courageous things. I mean, even, you know, in this area, uh, Guy Chichester cut down siren poles with a chainsaw and and <laughs> actually, you know, for the Seabrook nuclear plant. And he got off because uh, his, his defense was that uh, he was preventing a greater uh, harm. So tell, tell us about uh, what formative lessons that, that some of these people provided for uh, your fictional Ray. Yeah, I, you know, I think, and actually part of my hope in, in writing this book is, is to revive some of that, that history and lift up uh, some of those folks and put them on the altar, if you will. Huh. Um, but, but uh, you know, Ray is 19 years old, and she huh. lives with this real person, Sam Lovejoy, and a fictional Ray is living with this real person, Sam Lovejoy, ah. who's very involved in the anti-nuclear movement. Yes. And, uh, and eventually, you know, part of the clamshell Alliance that mm -hmm. that's that nonviolent movement was a real formation for her. Um, and he, you know, cut down a weather tower, uh, clipped the cables and then, you know, in, in, to oppose the construction of a nuclear power plant in Montague, Massachusetts. Yes. And then he went to turned himself in and and, and 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 stood trial for destruction of property and you know did a kind of a necessity defense. They brought in Howard Zinn to talk about wow. the critical role of uh, civil disobedience in, in in democratic societies, and they brought in Irving Goffman, an expert on the oh, yeah. nuclear industry. And and in the end, he was he was acquitted. Um, and so those, and then, you know, she also knew Wally and Winita Nelson, who were uh, civil rights activists and, and back to the land war tax resistors, uh, African-American couple living in Western Massachusetts. They, they, so these, these folks really were part of her formation and development. Uh, she even got to know Brian Wilson, who, oh, wow, yeah. uh, not, not the singer of the Beach right. Boys, but, uh, Brian Wilson, who was a very active Vietnam vet against yes. the war yes. and later lost his legs in an act of direct action, trying to stop arms shipments mm -hmm. to the Contras in Nicaragua. So, you know, she's sort of like in her 20s, sort of around these elders, um, some of them not that much older than her, but, you know, who who are not just sitting there, sitting back, and, and uh, but they're really engaged in 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 politics and policy and direct action. So yeah, those are, those are um, real people who form this kind of fictional characters worldview 
um, and show her that, you know, there's lots of ways that we can flex our, our muscles and our consciences. Oh, yes, indeed. And and you talk about heroes. You know, I do find it interesting that uh, uh, how how commonly the word hero is thrown around these days, uh, pretty much generally referring to the military. But if you look through history, a hero is somebody who is has amazing courage, who puts him or herself at great risk to do something powerful for the greater good. That's that's a real hero. And some of these people, like Sam Lovejoy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, were genuine heroes. And let's face it, we need heroes. And and I think uh, your book uh, talks about, uh, well, I don't know, she'd be seen as a hero, but uh, just just taking brave action, usually uh, nonviolent civil disobedience can do it, but... Uh, it's uh, there's a lot of it in our history, and as, as my old professor said, uh, politics is the economy of violence. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. We're talking to uh, an old friend, Chuck Collins, uh, activist, uh, uh, environmental, economic campaigner, about his new fiction book, Alter to an Erupting Sun. Well, let me take just a minute. How did you come up with that title, Altar to an Erupting Sun? Well, uh, altars figure prominently through the story. Um, kind of, and, and actually, many of the people we're talking about, as you, as you call them heroes, the real-life real people, are kind of honored in, in an altar form. And then I think the, the, the erupting sun ref, both refers to sort of the, the ecological crisis. We're, we're sort of seeing the sun erupting on earth with these extraordinary heat waves and weird weather events yeah uh, as well as the explosion at the beginning of the book is somewhat of a reference to uh an erupting sun uh, but the most important theme is the is the sort of role of altars and and mm. altars of remembrance as part of how ray kind of looks at the world mm. interesting and and the opposite of of you know, being involved in, in making change, uh, people oftentimes, I mean, we've been, many people have been convinced that we are powerless, there's nothing we can do, and that serves the uh, powerful uh, polluting interest very nicely. And one of the features of our current culture, of course, is isolation. People chain to their computers. But after her college days, Ray lived in community. How did that change her? And can that be replicated? Yeah, you know, I'm a, Ray lives in communities. You know, you could call call them in an earlier stage communes, but she lives her later years on a farm that's kind of like a eco village where you know people have their own houses, but they're they live in proximity and they share meals together and they share livelihoods. I think it is replicable. Not only is it replicable, but it's absolutely necessary. Uh, that that we find ways to to break out of sort of the, the social isolation of everyone living so fragmented. Uh, you know, I, I heard the you know the uh, public health commission has has declared loneliness uh, in the United States as an epidemic. Um, and and Ray is not a lonely person. In fact, she's kind of like the life of the party. She's yeah. the the weaver. She gets people together. She loves to dress up. She's she's kind of a sparkling character, and you know we all 
mm. know a few of those people in yes. our lives and we know how important they are yeah. to getting people together. And so Ray is a, is a, a weaver of people. She just loves organizing commemorative events and anniversaries and commemorations of part of holidays and this sort of thing. And we need more of that. We need, you know, so I think, um, and, and, and I think a lot of young people are never going to be able to own a home in today's economy. Right. So looking at ways at cooperative ownership or shared ownership, mm -hmm. uh, people building tiny house villages and maybe a common house and living and sharing the load and not everybody having their own lawnmower and that sort of thing. You know, I think, so I think part of the vision uh, of Alter to an Erupting Sun is people who are sort of preparing for the future, uh, a kind of a disrupted future by building community and how important that is to how we're going to face the coming uh, years and decades ahead. Yeah. Well, it's, I, I don't know the source of this quote, but one thing I've learned from history is that we've never learned, we never learned from history, but there is a lot that can be learned that, that has worked. And, and to see that, uh, you know, something is changing, something is changing in so many ways and to just ignore it and to, to bury ourselves in isolation and loneliness, uh, it only exacerbates whatever problems there were. And Ray, she, she comes from a family, and she had a, a brother named Toby, who is a Fox News watcher. They were inseparable as children, but grew apart as adults. In the book, do they, rep they represent the growing divide in the larger American family. I wonder if you could please speak to that. Yeah, you know, I think that a lot of families have this experience, which is over the, the last several decades, families have become polarized in the same way that, you know, the society's become more polarized. You know, you, it's hard to get together at Thanksgiving when you, you know, yeah. you've got the Trump, Trump supporter and the, you know, uh, progressive activists all sitting down together it doesn't create harmony and that happens in Ray's family but what I think is and I try to show in Ray and her brother Toby's cases Ray insists on staying connected to Toby and mm -hmm. trying to understand him and um, you know they grew up in a kind of working class southern Ohio family and he goes one way and she goes another um, but but they have this connection, which is that as kids, they were outdoors, they were in nature. Uh, and there's one point where Toby says, you've become a tree hugger. And, and, and Ray says, you're my big brother. You taught me to hug trees. You, uh -huh. you showed me how to live and love nature. And so that becomes kind of this connection between them. And Ray even has a dream where she, she's going to see Toby and she knows they're going to be having conflict. And she has a dream of them swimming. And she thinks, well, we have to get in water together. And she takes them to her favorite swimming holes. And that just, they stay connected, even though they're pulling apart. You know, and uh, Ray's sort of husband, Reggie says, yeah, he's, he's, his brain has been occupied by Fox News. And Ray says, well, that's how he looks at us, too. He thinks we've been uh uh, manipulated to. Mm -hmm. So she's trying to empathize and stay connected to her brother, even when, when he's a pill. Um, and in the end, I think that that connection endures. And I think that's, that's part of what I want to show is we're, 
we are bigger than than this polarization. Yeah, it's interesting how the the polarization is used by you know the the, the powers that it helps, but. The reality underneath it is, it's like, why why did people go in that right-wing direction? You know, they everybody has their own suffering, and they deal with it however mm. they best can. And uh, if, I mean, they're not, a, a Trump supporter, a Fox watcher is not the enemy. They are like us, and we have to, there are connections that can be made. And I'm guessing that this story that you tell uh, tries to uh, to look at that and and see that uh, yeah that that there's stuff beneath it that that we can connect as people. Boy, that's not a story that's told very often. Unfortunately, people are missing that quite a bit in the in the heat of the day. The you know the uh, the political heat of the day. It gets rough out there sometimes. I mean, there is real violence, as you know, uh, and. You talked, I didn't want to let go of, you mentioned how people in the global south uh, in the story look look up to her. And as things change, as the world changes, as, you know, the, the, the reality that, uh, you know, the tradition of U.S. global militaristic imperialism ain't working anymore. You know, it's not making us more, you know, nationally secure, that something different has to come. And, and is coming, and uh, connect, perhaps connecting with the global south, and, and have, you know, there's power there, there's some sort of bubbling up, it's kind of erupting, perhaps, <laughs> the, the power mm. of, of the global south. Talk about that, if you would, please, and, and, and Ray's role with that. Yeah, um, I mean, a, a really important part of Ray's formation is that, like a lot of people, uh, she, in the 1980s, spent time in Central America, in Nicaragua and El Salvador, mm -hmm. and sort of kind of got that visceral picture of the United States role in those countries, the United States kind of uh, colonial power, throwing its weight around, mm -hmm. supporting militaries uh, that were, you know, tra training uh, militaries to torture and, and, and suppress their own citizenship. Mm -hmm. So even though her, her, you know, tour there was only six months. It had a, it made a huge imprint on her. Um, and again, in the 1980s, thousands of people from the United States went to Nicaragua as an expression of friendship. Here, our, the U.S. was at war with Nicaragua, funding the Contra mercenary army to attack the, the government and the people of Nicaragua. So a lot of Americans went down and they picked cotton and picked coffee and they kind of made friendships across borders and you know that there's a whole generation of people i think that was formed by that and and my fictional ray kelleher was one of them mm -hmm. but it you know and it has a lasting impact because even as you think about the climate crisis you realize wait a sec those of us in the kind of uh, middle class affluent northern mm -hmm. countries consume so much more uh, burn so much more carbon. We consume more. We are kind of the drivers. Mm -hmm. We're the we're the users of the fossil fuel products, um, and that the people along the equator burn considerably less carbon, and and yet will suffer the worst first consequences of climate disruption. They already are. Yeah. So so I think that that that's where 
raise insight that oh, okay you know we in we in the global north we in the in the united states have particularly white and privileged people have a huge responsibility uh to fix be at the front lines of fixing this and we have more agency we may not feel like uh-huh. we have much power but actually we have way more agency than a lot of other people in the world and we should use that meaningfully that's for sure too i mean you look at the the resources that are necessary for uh the the, the profits of uh you know big corporations that are making all kinds of electronic things i mean you know the various uh, rare earth products the people that dig up the earth to get that stuff uh they're paying a pretty high price and you know you talk we in the global north have benefited tremendously from uh i mean england was was not exactly subtle about their uh, empire many years ago uh, they, they you know it, it served them very well now it's a little bit more subtle but maybe reparations i mean there's there's talk about hey wait a minute they the global south is paying a much higher price in so many ways than we are and so it's it's good that uh, this talks about that in, in your book, and that uh, we're, we're you know there are many different ways to to wake us up on that about about the global south. And I can't help but think that the the political power of the global south is is rising, and that as as you use the word drivers, you know the uh, the CEO of this uh, polluting uh, uh, fossil fuel company. I mean, they're drivers. They're driving this thing. Not everybody is, is the same degree of, of driver. And you talk about driving the car industry. And so many others have profited by convincing us all we contribute to climate change, like all of us equally. And like so many other American traditional belief, individual, slightly greener actions are all we need. But the truth is a small but incredibly powerful industry has knowingly destroyed our ecosystem and with it subverted democracy. Ugh, as, you know, Bert, this yeah. is such an important point that you mentioned here, which is, and, and actually Rebecca Solnit did a, a great uh-huh. little piece about how BP promotes this idea of the carbon footprint tracker so that we all look at all the ways in which we our individual behaviors add up to more carbon emissions and it's a deflection. Um, and, yes. and, and Ray would sort of say, you know, she, I, I think she, in, in this story, I try to show, she starts off with this sort of, Hey, we're all responsible. We all are responsible, particularly those of us, you know, in the, in the, in the North Northern hemisphere who, who have a, you know, affluent standard of living. Yes. Um, and she comes more to the conclusion like, okay, yes, that's true, but this powerful industry lobbied to deny the existence of climate change, to fund uh, doubt, you know, sow doubt and, and sham, promote sham science, to block alternatives so that if you did want to drive a car that didn't burn gas, you, you didn't have that on the menu, that wasn't an option. Right. And delay and delay. And right up here, you and I are talking uh, as part of, you know, the President Biden and and Congress's debt ceiling agreement. They agreed to yet another Mountain Valley gas pipeline project. Now, what did that have to do with the deficit? Well, it just shows the power of the fossil fuel industry to get their way. 
in our current political system, that they just cannot stop themselves and won't be stopped from building new infrastructure mm. at a time when we know we should stop extracting and burning uh, new energy. You know, we should we should wind it down. We should make a rapid transition. But they're keeping us yes. from making that transition. Yes, they are. And that ain't exactly democracy. That's for sure. That's quite the antithesis of democracy to have, you know, a, a small, powerful few making all the choices. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about real threats to our democracy as well as threats to our planet and a new book of fiction. Our guest today is Chuck Collins, uh, and he's got a new book, Altar to an Erupting Sun. And one of the things that the, the American people have been led for years in this drug war you know, and and uh, the fact is that uh, you know a lot of people are dying of some really dangerous uh, drugs, fentanyl, whatever. And certain people, certain companies have profited immensely from that. There was a, a very good TV uh, series called uh, "Dope Sick" uh, about uh, a certain family that profited tremendously from that. And you suggest this. This is not off topic. That. These people who are uh, the, the leaders of the powerful industry that are destroying life on Earth, that perhaps we should treat them as we treat an illegal global drug cartel. Talk about that, please. Yeah, I mean, I think part of part of why we real have to realize is there are living men who are heck bent, hell bent on, you know, pushing things extracting as much profit from this oil gas and coal system as possible and they're you know they're the bad guys i mean really they're 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 putting their own selfish interests ahead of the survivability of the whole planet so we should name those folks we should mm -hmm. you know build little monuments to their uh to their their folly and we should treat them like you know they're like El Chapo, right? You know, uh -huh, they're they're uh -huh. they're they're heads of large drug cartels that are causing harm. You know, and I think one of the things that we should do is have hearings, you know, congressional hearings uh -huh. on the role of the fossil fuel industry in warping and capturing our political democracy. Uh, we should think about creating public or private authorities to purchase or uh, acquire the assets of these fossil fuel companies so that they don't burn them, just like we would seize the assets of a large drug cartel mm -hmm. and use them for use them to offset the harms caused by, you know, their, their, their illegal activities. Um, so we should re revoke the social license and the legitimacy of both these people and their companies mm. that are, that are harming us. And yet, Chuck, as you know, many of the uh, people, working class people who tend to perhaps idolize some of the wealthy people because they're wealthy, because they're really rich, that makes them smarter. And there's sort of a, a hero worship of people who have made a tremendous amount of money, never mind that they're, you know, destroying the earth and, and ruining things for, for everybody else. And connecting with uh, with people, it's it's a hard thing to do. The idea of you know having having hearings and, and putting some of these 
people who you and I might consider, you know, committing real serious crimes, you know, putting them on the spot. Uh, that's going to be hard to get to. But perhaps uh, the story that's in, in your book, uh, Alter to an Erupting Sun, maybe that can uh, connect with people and, and, you know, wake people up on that. Your thoughts? I think that, that that's certainly my hope. And, and I think part of what we know is things are not going to get better. Uh, you know, um, I mean, New England is enshrouded in smoke yeah. uh, the, these days that we're talking. New York from wildfires burning in Canada. Uh, our food system is going to get disrupted. Um, our, we're going to face more weird weather, droughts and heat waves and floods. All of that will focus our attention on uh-huh, what's uh-huh. going on and who is responsible. And the fossil fuel industry is going to be happy to tell us that we're all responsible. Right. And that we're like just, we're the, we're the users. We're, we're creating the demand. But the point of this book and of Ray's, her consciousness, she comes to the conclusion like, wait a sec, these, these folks rig the menu. Mm. You know, if, if, you know, 20 years ago, you would wanted to drive an electric vehicle or take a fast train from Concord, New Hampshire to Boston, you're, you're not able to. Well, why is that? It's because this industry blocked the alternatives. They made sure there was only three things on the menu, right? Oil, gas, and coal, maybe a little nuke over here, but you know, that, 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 that's the menu. So you can't blame ordinary people for not having choices right now. It's this powerful industry. I mean, we could have even become Europe, right? Europe at least has fuel efficient vehicles. Yeah higher gas taxes, they invest in better public transit. You know, 30, 40 years ago, if we knew what Shell and Exxon knew 40 years ago, if our politicians knew, we could have made really different choices and we'd be in a really much better place than we are now. Mm-hmm. Now we're, we're like looking at extinction events versus bad catastrophes. You know, like that's, that's, sure. that's right. the future. Yeah, that's the choices. <laughs> yeah, and that choice has been constructed by this fossil fuel industry. Mm. They've brought us to that. And they've limited uh, the other options that were out there. They've blocked them. They've used their considerable power yes. to block a path to sustainable living. And it, I, I, I constantly find it amazing how the idea of democracy can be a solution. I mean, if we had more economic democracy, if there, you know, there was no democracy in the in the uh, policies that you were just talking about. Uh, it was the antithesis, and it, uh, you know, if the concept of the common good somehow were uh, the the strongest uh, impulse, and that, uh, well, as FDR did some of his stuff, tether uh, capitalism to uh, the common good and require that that be the driving force. Yeah, well, it takes a lot of work, but and we are not powerless. They, I know they want us to think we're powerless. We are not. And it, it, it's interesting, you know, that sometimes there has to be radical action. There has to be radical solutions. And in terms of racial issues, I've heard the story that if a white guy, and put it this way, is winning a race because the black guy early on when he started uh, had shackles on his ankles and the white guy didn't, 
Well, it's not enough to let the black guy finish the final yards of the race without the shackles because he's way behind. That's how it started. Reparations are called for. The U.S. and the West obviously have done the most pollution, yet the other countries and billions of people are paying the unfair price. And you suggest that, quote, others excluded from wealth insecurity, both globally and in the U.S., should have more resources to have decent lives. So what's a fair but perhaps radical solution, maybe involving uh, the idea of reparations? Well, you know, there is a global movement uh, to uh, recognize that, the, uh, you know, a, a century of, of extraction or a century or longer of extraction has caused huge damages and losses to societies along the equator in the global south. Uh, you know, there's, as part of the climate negotiations, there's what they call loss and damages. Um, but at this point, uh-huh. you know, our tax system is so uh, porous and voluntary for the ultra-rich. This gets into another part of my work, which is how yeah. tens of trillions of dollars is, has been hidden, mm. uh, wealth controlled and owned by the ultra-wealthy. And that's those are the those are the funds. If we were going to repair, if we were going to fund societies that have suffered the legacy of extraction and right. and now are bearing the brunt of climate disruption, the, those funds should go to help rebuild transit systems, you know, mitigate oh, yeah. uh, the worst effects of climate disruption. So there's plenty of wealth out there. Yes, and that's money that should be deployed. In, in a very rapid and timely way to everything we can to mitigate against disruption. Yeah, for sure. And and people uh, largely, I think, don't remember that, uh, you know, but when I was growing up in the, in the 50s and Eisenhower was president, uh, we had largely peace and prosperity. I mean, the foreign policy, eh, not so great. But uh, the tax rate was very, very high on that portion of people's incomes that was above a certain uh, fixed amount. And it worked really well. And it was good for the common good. And you know, what, there are surprises that we're not expecting. I mean, who expected uh, the pandemic? Who expected COVID-19? Ray, your character in the book, lives on the Hidden Springs Farm community. And most of us in our wider society experienced the pandemic as traumatic. The farm community found it mostly uh, an enjoyable test run for a disrupted future. Explain that, please. Does it offer a realistic, replicable future? And and how? I mean, here we we got you know knocked on our butts by this pandemic, but how was it sort of an, an opportunity? And where does that fit into the story? Well, I think it's part of part of the vision, and and you and I were talking about isolation and the yeah. fact that for a lot of people, uh, the pandemic further isolated people. You know, and 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 uh, the the loneliness and the mental health struggles during and and coming out of the pandemic are are huge. Um, and what so unlike that experience, the folks who lived at this Hidden River Farm, uh, you know, I think it was like you know tw- twelve people living. They you know, became kind of their own pod. They became their own universe and university is what Ray described it as. And, you know, partly they're growing food. They are making music. They are um, practicing kind of 
resilience building in a very interpersonal way. They're trying to figure out how to get more of their livelihoods rooted in the local region. They start a business helping people do uh, death preparation for death and dying. Mm-hmm. Um, they they have they grow all kinds of food and all kinds of products. They have a, a little inn, little hospitality they offer. So uh, for them, the pandemic wasn't as lonely. In mm-hmm. fact, there was a sort of uh, loveliness in staying put and and learning from each other and and working on projects together. Um, so that that's how their experience was 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 quite different than a lot of people who were kind of in a more isolated or fragmented um, living situation. And you mentioned death and and you know somehow building it in. In our culture, death is largely a mystery and. We don't like to look at it, that's for sure. But Ray believed that our attitude towards death and dying are part of what keeps our society from from facing the realities of climate change. Uh, how how so? Well, I think we 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 live both with climate denial and sort of death to the right. Denial. Right. Know, we, we really don't really talk about it. It's considered kind of. Um, and Ray was a you know, her part of her job was as a death doula. She worked with people Whoa. to help them think about how to, how to live their best, how to, how to go out the way they wanted to, mm. as opposed to over medicalized and, you know, getting kind of caught right. up in the, um, you know, the expensive and not always helpful right. medical intervention side. So for instance, she, they, they kind of, they actually have at the farm a, kind of sacred grove where where people have green burials they help people organize parties while they're still alive where they can you know somebody says well i'm i'm dying and i'm you know i'm gonna i'd like to have everybody get together while i'm still alive and have my wits about me and have a celebration of my life and i don't want to wait till after i die and miss miss that and so they're they're kind of pioneering a new culture around facing death and 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 kind of how to transition to the in a way that maintains people's dignity mm. um so yeah that that that's a and that is a theme and and all, the, the the notion of altar building is part of that how do you honor uh those who've passed mm. and how do you hold them in our memories and how do you draw strength from that that's a really important theme so ray is a she's an altar builder She's a weaver of uh, events where people come together and they, they've maybe made a decision to do a physician-assisted suicide. They're, mm-hmm. they're, you know, they use the word suicide. They're, they're, they're going to decide when they're going to exit, and uh, they organize celebrations and parties. So that's, a, that's an important part of the story is not only sort of the issues around violence and nonviolence, but just how we live and how we die uh, to honor ourselves and our our elders. Boy, that is important. We we really 
will do anything but look at that stuff. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a mystery, but it's part of everybody's life. It is. I mean, always has been, always will be. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And our guest, I'm very pleased to have an old friend, Chuck Collins, who is a uh, known as a campaigner and storyteller who works on a program of Inequality and the Common Good, Institute for Policy Studies. He co-edits inequality.org. A uh, whole bunch of really good things, in my opinion. And he's got a brand new book out, uh, a book of fiction, Alter to an Erupting Sun. And you mentioned Ray's husband, the, the main character. He's a union organizer, Reggie Donovan. And he's worried that, and th- this would concern me too, I must say, that her act uh, would not only be viewed as terrorism, instead of the statement she intended it to be, but that it would lead the government to crush future protests and and have the opposite effect of for, for making people uh, sympathetic uh, to, to her cause. Uh, at, least, at least initially, he was right. His concerns were right. What kind of blowback was there? And did the, did the passage of time validate her predictions? How did that all play out? Well, I think Reggie rightfully says to her when, and there's this one moment where she sort of kind of vaguely says, look, I'm thinking this is how, how I, how I think I want to die. And he, Reggie just says, that, that, that's a terrible idea. That may be, you know, cathartic for you or purging for you, but it's, it's going to really harm the movements. And, and he's right. You know, so as, as the seven years play out afterwards, you see, you know, uh, People who are nonviolently resisting climate change, they're, 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 uh, and this is happening now as as, as we talk, uh, criminalization of dissent. Yes, uh, it's happening in England and in Europe, where you know Extinction Rebellion and other groups have been, you know, much more disruptive in drawing attention to the climate crisis. Well, those folks are facing severe penalties right. and uh, you know the the cop city direct actions outside Atlanta right now same thing so uh, you, you see this amping up you see uh, mm. kind of a, a crude brush being painted uh, across all legitimate activism and people saying you know they're these are the eco terrorists so it, it has a negative and in our in our political context today I think it would just worsen polarization. So Reggie understands and sees that. He sees the folly. And he also just, in a U.S. context, makes a very compelling argument to Ray. Look, you know, violence actually has right. it just doesn't work. It doesn't bring people together. It creates secretiveness. It creates division. Uh, it's, it's not a good tactic or strategy, and it's immoral. So he sort of holds up that part of the argument. Um, yeah, and what makes it a little nuanced is, uh, it, it, you know, some of what I would consider positive things happen because of the attention that's being drawn to, um, you know, the fossil fuel leaders. Uh-huh. And it does, let's face it, when they're dead, they can't do it anymore. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's gone on in history quite a bit. And there have been many cases where a lot of people who are suffering 
do get angry, and as we say, you know, regicide is nothing, uh, nothing new. And and it's not like uh, this guy was was a king or you know royalty, but uh, it does in fact stop them. And boy, it's not it's not easy. And again, politics is the economy of violence. Well, Chuck, you want readers to be shocked, even repulsed, perhaps by Ray's final act. But not only that, how, do you, how else do you want readers to engage with this story? What would Ray be doing today if she were among us? Yeah, Ray would be saying, where are the pressure points? You know, where can we take bold action in defense of the earth? Um, and, you know, she'd probably you know, say, well, yeah, we should all, you know, be part of direct action groups. Um, people who are older could join, you know, third act, which is kind of a coalition of elders who are getting engaged on these. We should, we should think about, um, you know, direct intervention and sacrificial acts for Ray, you know, uh, she was reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer and, and, and said, well, you know, if I was alive, when Hitler was alive, I would, I would hope that I would, you know, risk, risk all to, to end the, the 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 holocaust you know and 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 tyranny so she would she would be counseling us to each look inside ourselves and say what what are you called to here what what bold what's what does bold action look like for you for each of us and and engage in that and find others to to join in that effort um so i you know i think that's that's ultimately her exhortation is be bold uh, you don't have to do what Ray does, mm-hmm. but you can find a way to be bold uh, in this moment that we're in. And it is true. People like heroes. They do like heroes. And uh, it's, you know, Hollywood has made a lot of money on uh, potential heroes. Uh, and there, there's also the idea that I, I you know, haven't heard in a while, discipleships, you know, being a disciple. Mm-hmm. What, 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 what is that? And what, what, in what ways... Uh, what might a new discipleship look like, and why is that important? Where does that fit in? Yeah, um, well, in a lot of religious traditions, you know, there, there's this notion both of formation how do we, how do we become who we are? How do we align our values with maybe our religious teachings or our higher calling? And discipleship is how do we put that into practice? You know, on a daily basis. And uh, the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a very famous book called On Discipleship that my fictional character Ray was very interested in. But what she would have said, and, and her husband Reggie at the end, you know, kind of a memorial birthday service says, Ray believed that how we were living at the Hidden River Farm was a new discipleship. Uh, you know, not not the traditional religious vocation, uh, you know, but but a way of trying to live in harmony with the earth, uh, live you know, create livelihoods that that don't extract and harm others, but contribute to the well-being and and the community. Mutual aid, uh, support for human liberation, new ways of thinking about death and dying. These were all part of um, kind of Ray, you know, reparations and the land back movement. Ray Ray was talking a lot about how do we get more people on the land, mm. people who've been excluded from owning access to land and housing. Oh yeah, how do community land trusts for BIPOC folks, that sort of thing. That was mm-hmm. sort of part of the work of the Hidden River Farm. So 
in a in a kind of old fashioned religious way, Ray saying, "This is what discipleship looks uh-huh. like today." Uh-huh. And Grow your own food and all those things. And there's so many possibilities in every uh, problem. Maybe this is old fashioned. There is an opportunity. And there's so much to learn from. And it's not like this is, you know, brand new, un, you know, unfamiliar stuff. Uh, it's, it's, it, you're showing what works, uh, and, you know, that the bold action has to be done to save us. Because, uh, I mean, I don't want the planet to die partially. I really don't. So thank you, Chuck. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Chuck Collins, the new book is Alter to an Erupting Sun. Thank you so much for being with us today and, and providing some, uh, oh, dare I say, optimism. <laughs> Thanks, Bert. I hope so. <laughs> All right. Thank you. I do think we have a shot. Oh, boy, I hope so. Thank you. Just for one day What'd you say?
If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.